Negotiation is so critical to your current and future leadership that this show is divided into two parts. In part one, we learn the tools of a master negotiator. In part two, we will help you utilize your new skills to negotiate between departments, advance your career, get a raise, or even a better job in a new company. You will also learn the biggest mistakes most people make when negotiating. Alert! Situations like developing a budget or getting prime projects are more than just conversations. They are negotiations. You must be as prepared, persuasive, and influential as possible. As soon as you start thinking of it that way, you will have an advantage in preparing correctly for your negotiation. Here are some specific tips you will get from this show. Negotiating a budget, how to know what motivates the other person, the best ways to defend a decision you make, understanding the difference between positional power and real power, how to identify who has power in a department, a hack that will build your impact and influence in your company, the insider secret to negotiating your salary and more. And be sure to listen for my update in the middle of the show that will help you set the stage for a more profitable new year for yourself, your team, and your company, and a happier, more productive life. And if you haven't listened to part one already, be sure to do that for Better Negotiation Foundation. Welcome to Women's Leadership Podcast. Showing you how to influence people, improve your performance, and advance your career. Brought to you by women's leadership and career expert Sabrina Braum and womensleadershipsuccess.com. Here's your chance to meet women trendsetters leading the way to success, accomplishment, and balance in business and life. No matter if you're a manager, CEO, or entrepreneur, join Sabrina for coaching and no-nonsense advice to improve your career and bottom line. This is Women's Leadership Success. And today we are talking to Mark Raffin, who is a negotiator. And Mark, would you tell us the name of your book and how long you've been negotiating? Yes, thank you very much for having me, Sabrina. The book is Nine Secrets to Win Deals and Influence Stakeholders, available on Amazon right now. Uh, I've been doing this for far too long. (laughs) Uh, My career is in uh, procurement. I spent an entire career in procurement. And this book is written for sales and business professionals from a procurement perspective, because what we've seen, and procurement people get to see this all the time, is they see hundreds and hundreds of negotiations and sales presentations a year, but they never get the opportunity to share where the salespeople might be going wrong. And so this is my attempt to be able to do that. Great. Really appreciate that. So in this part two, I wanted to talk to you about negotiating between departments. Um, And this comes up a lot in my consulting and coaching where you have a department, they've got this really great idea, this initiative, they're all ready to go. And another department comes in and says, Uh, that's our budget, or we're going to do something differently. What are the things that people need to learn about negotiation that they can use in different departments in the company or to present their cases? 
Yeah, everything in the book is both applicable externally in uh, sales or commercial negotiation uh, environment, as well as internally. And that's very important for people to understand because internally, we give different names to negotiation to make it feel easier. So we'll say things like, oh, we're getting alignment on something, or we are um, passing around the baton on something, or some crazy thing that we've come up with when really we're meaning, hey, we've got to negotiate something to be able to do it. And I want people to view the conversations uh, and discussions that they have to either get budget or get projects or those kinds of things as negotiations. They're not just conversations. As soon as you start thinking that way, that'll allow you to start preparing properly for your negotiation. Remember that the person that you're negotiating with and conversing with internally, who you want to get the project from or the budget from, or maybe you're there's a bit of a debate internally around which department should get the budget or should get the project, those people are trying to get it too, right? It's not just a conversation between Maya and Jenny about you know the best merits for who gets it. It's also a way to be able to gain projects in the organizations through negotiation. So how do we prepare for that? Very important that people think of, number one, which of us not just deserves it more, but which of us has prepared more for the negotiation? So what do you want to get out of this negotiation? We want to, yes, we want to get the project or yes, we want to get the budget, but that's the outcome. What is it that we're actually trying to do to get to that outcome? And what benefit is our department or our part of the business showing that the other department or the other part of the business cannot show? Because essentially, we're in a bit of a show pony competition, and we need to be able to show that we can deliver more value than the other department who's maybe jockeying for that same position. Now, they're going to make arguments, obviously, for their side of the conversation, too. Your job, though, is to be as persuasive and influential internally as you can be. Now, the biggest mistake that most people make when they are trying to jockey for position is that they rely solely on logic. So they'll say, well, the ROI that my team will generate if we get this budget is X percent, whatever X percent is, and that's 10% more than Jenny's department, for example. No one makes decisions based purely on logic, and that's where most people fall flat. So what are they, what are they making it on if they're not making it on logic? Yeah, so this is an excellent question because you would think that if you have a strong logical argument, then clearly you should be the person who gets it, right? Because the math should show that, right? Here's my math. Here's why it works. Why am I not getting this? If that was the case, if logic was the the determining factor on how things get decided upon, then there would actually be no need for you to have budget conversations that would all be had over spreadsheets. Yeah. Right. So what really matters is 
the emotional component that you have with that logic and the credibility that you have within the organization to carry that logic. Now, this is not our idea. We stole this idea from Aristotle, who came up with this over 2,000 years ago. So he talked about logos, pathos, and ethos, logic, emotion, and ethical credibility. So when we think of it within that context, yes, we have to have logic. There has to be a reason why someone would do something. If I want to get you to make a decision on something, there has to be a logical reason. Uh That's to give you an out. That's not to give you the reason. I want to make you feel good, though, about making that decision in my favor, or I want to try and maximize your feelings of missing out on something if you don't take advantage of what I'm doing. So let me give you an example. Perfect. Um, Let's say, for example, I'm jockeying for a project that I think is really, really important, and I need budget for that. We're in budget discussions, and multiple departments are arguing over budget, and I'm saying, well, that budget should go to me. The vast majority of that budget should go to me. And you say, wonderful, Mark, tell me about your project, and I tell you about all of the bells and whistles, and I give you the numbers, and I tell you it's going to generate this ROI for the business, and we talk about hurdle rates and all of those important things in the business. And you say, great. But I've missed the emotional appeal. So now what I need to think about is, why does this matter to you? It's not just about the money that the company is going to generate. It's about how this makes you look, how this makes you feel, what this makes you um, think about, how this generates success for you. And how good you're going to look in front of your boss as a result of it. And if I know what personally motivates you, then I might be able to say, well, hey, Sabrina, if we do this thing, X, Y, Z are going to happen and you're going to get this return. And also this, this and this are going to happen, which are going to allow us collectively, you and I, to get way more recognition. And I think that's going to open up a lot of opportunities for us because when I listened to the town hall where Jenny, the CEO, was speaking, she mentioned that these three things were important for the organization and we're hitting all three of these things within this project. It's a slam dunk. Now, when you hear those things, if you're motivated by phrase, if you're motivated by adulation, if you're motivated by promotion opportunities, that's going to make you feel more excited. But let's just say you're motivated by money. And I this is going to generate a bonus for you, for example. I might say, hey, Sabrina, if you do this thing, the opportunity for us to bonus out on this is fairly significant because of the way that it's going to impact the business. Now, the reason I give you those two different stories of one motivated by praise and adulation, one motivated by money is I've got to understand what you're motivated by, what you really intrinsically care about before I can actually decide what's going to emotionally drive you in a certain direction. So I'm not going to throw anything out there that's going to be emotionally appealing to you if I know that it's not going to hit you a certain way. So for another another example is if one of my projects is going to really impact the community and help the community, and I know that you're a volunteer, you care about the community, you invest a lot of your time, you're you're putting a lot of time with the church or wherever you're volunteering, I say, look at the amount of people that we're going to be help, able to help with this. That's going to pull on your emotions differently than saying money. 
So what you are most focused on is where I'm going to spend the majority of my time talking about why this is so important emotionally for you. Now, I'm never going to say, look, this is emotionally important for you. I'm just going to talk about it and how it benefits those things and why it's important and how you might feel about it and the people that are going to help and blah, blah, blah. And then I'm going to give you the logic, right? And the, oh, and by the way, it's also going to generate X for the business. So right. that when, when you have to defend it, because you're going to have to defend it, when you, and someone comes to you and says, Sabrina, why did you make a decision to go with Mark's project? You're not going to say, look at all the people it helps. You're going to say, well, it generates XROI. And that was pretty clear, right? Yeah. I'm giving you the out. I'm giving you the way to be able to defend your decision. It's almost like going on to, let's say, for example, you were going on to a car lot. And you were looking for, you'd already basically decided that you were going to buy a base model car, but you wanted to test drive it one more time just to see how it feels. And so you get in that car um, or you get onto the car lot and you can't find the car anywhere on the car lot. But a very good salesperson steps in front of you and says, hey, before you go, I know you were looking for this base model car. We don't have it, unfortunately, but we do have the upgrade available. It's basically the same car. Why don't you just hop in and take that for a spin? No harm, no foul. I know you're going to buy the base model anyway. Just take it for a spin and see how it feels. And you think, great idea. I'm going to do that. Why not? It's basically the same car. So you hop in, you take it for a spin, and you put your foot on the gas and you realize, whoa, that power feels amazing. And then you get out of a very close call in an, ac in an accident. And you realize, ah, this is so much space. But then you put your foot down on the gas again and it feels good. And then you look back at the space and you start to think to yourself, you know what? I do need more space, actually, because I'm carting around kids' soccer gear and family and all of the things that I have to travel with. So I'm going to need this space. And then you put your foot down on the gas again and it feels good again. And you think to yourself, yeah, the space is a really good idea. And I, you know what? I probably need more power because the roads in my city are really bad. And I did just miss an accident. Thank God I had that power. And then what are you do? You're talking yourself into buying the car because it feels good, but you're coming up with logic so that when someone asks you, you can say, well, hey, Sabrina, why did you buy that car? You say, well, you know what? We need more space. <laughs> we need more power. No, you did it because it felt good. That's why you need an emotional appeal. And just like you said in part one, this is why you need to do your research. You need to know that's right who the players are and what what's important to them. How do you identify who has power? Very in good question. Department. Very good question. So there's a difference between positional power and and real power. Let's let's talk about positional power. Positional, and by the way, you could have both. So positional power comes with the position that you hold, the authority that you hold within right. the business, right? So if you're a vice president, you're an SVP, you're a part of the C-level, you, you have positional power. But there's always that one person um, or many people within the organization who may not necessarily have positional power, but to have strong real power, like influential power, someone who's mid-level within the organization that never made it to VP, but knows everyone, 
and has phenomenal credibility. And when she walks into a room and says, hey, I think this is the direction we've got to go, everyone goes, okay, that makes sense. That's Chloe. Checks out, right? Like Chloe is never wrong. Right. So understanding that is very important. That's the starting point of understanding who has power within another department. It's not just about the position that that person holds. It's about the influence that that person holds over the people who have positional power. Very, very key. Once you can start reflecting on that and who has the ear of those people with positional power, then you can start influencing internally correctly. Beautiful. And now for a break. A year ago, I worked with Michelle, who had been a director in a Fortune 500 company for over 10 years. She had top academic credentials and several patents to her name. She was well-liked by her team and known for her creative and innovative processes. Unfortunately, as she watched her company grow, many of her peers got promoted, but she was passed over numerous times. She was hurt, disappointed, and confused. She couldn't figure out why other people were advancing, and she wasn't. She realized she needed an outside perspective to get unstuck and to move to the next level, so she hired me to coach her. Initially, we focused on improving her executive presence, political savvy, plus other essential strategies that she wasn't even aware she was missing. After a few months, she was excited that she was now included in key meetings asked for advice, and speaking at company events. Soon she was promoted to vice president. She wanted to continue to develop her new role and have more impact, so she continued coaching with me. Michelle is now a highly respected leader in her company and within her industry. If you can relate to the challenges that Michelle was having and you would like to increase your confidence, impact, and income in 2024, please contact me soon to see if you qualify for a complimentary coaching session. You can reach me at sabrinabrom.com or via LinkedIn. I have two openings for my custom executive coaching system in January, and I've launched a new exclusive executive leadership mastermind group that fellow members are raving about. I look forward to talking to you soon. I have so many questions. One of the things I want to ask you about is, so you're in the company, you talk about this in the book. It's a great chapter. How can you build your your uh, ability to have impact and influence in a company? What are What are things that one can do to improve their visibility? Yeah, I, I think the single most important thing that you can do is to focus on your building your credibility. And Aristotle speaks about this quite a lot. Um, he calls it uh, ethos. Uh, we just call it, our modern vernacular for it could be personal brand right? Like what is your personal brand within the organization? And that comes down to all of the classic things that you may have heard before, right? Education, experience, uh, your ability to execute on certain projects, maybe what you've done in the past, 
we call that basically social proof. What is the social proof that you can do what you said you're going to do? Now, those are all things that we build over a career, which is important. But there's a way to, I don't want to say shortcut that process, but make it faster that we call piggyback branding or piggyback credibility, where you can piggyback off of the credibility of other people within your department in order to get more influence. So for example, if you're trying to sell a new project internally, you're trying to sell a new idea internally, you can, if you don't have any history within that department or you're new to the organization and you're worried that people aren't going to take you seriously, use the stories of other people in your organization and say, you know, we did a similar project where Jenny was working on X, Y, or Z, or Maya was working on ABC, and it worked out like this. The reviews were fantastic. It was incredible. And you're creating basically stories about the other people that have done it so that that can gain you the ability to gain influence and gain exposure within your business. And that's very important, especially for those people that are new to organizations or want to understand how to progress within organizations. Maybe you don't have the political cachet that you should yet. Uh, it's a way to be able to do that. And you're not saying that you did those projects, by the way. That's very important. You're not claiming responsibility for their success. You're just pointing out that your department has also done it. And here are the success stories of those things. And that's why you should trust our department. And here's how I can help you. Yeah, you're associating your brand with this. Very much. Or whatever the person that has a great reputation. Yeah, that's that's why the top universities in on the planet, that's why people talk about their education, right? Like if you have a... If you have an education from Oxford or Cambridge or Yale or wherever you are, mm -hmm. you're probably going to talk about that on, on, on your interview, in your resume, on social media, because you're, you're piggyback branding. You're not saying that you are that. You're just saying that I am a product of that, and that has been successful, and therefore you can trust me. What's the difference between persuasion, influence, and manipulation? Excellent question. I, and I want to... In your book and just in this interview, what it's so clear that you're not into manipulating or doing anything unethical. So I really help us understand the difference between those. And then what are the steps to persuade? But first, what's the difference? Sure. So I'll start with the difference between persuasion and manipulation, and then I'll get into influence. So okay. pers persuasion is my way to get you to do something through body language, tonal inflection, vocal cues, strategy, the way I structure sentences, that is going to leave you better off and leave me better off. That's mm -hmm. persuasion. Okay. My intent is positive, and that's very important. This is the key difference between manipulation and persuasion. Manipulation could include some of the same activities, but the intent is to leave you worse off. That's the key. So a lot of people struggle with this because they're like, well, Mark, it sounds like some of the things that you are saying could be misconstrued as manipulative only if it's left that person worse off. <clears throat> Pardon me. If it's left that person worse off, you're absolutely correct. 
mm-hmm. I think that's a fair fair assessment. But if it's left them better off, then it's persuasion. Now let's talk about influence. Influence is how I project my persuasion publicly. So how influential I am in an organization is how I've projected that persuasion over the people within that organization. So I have strong, for example, strong social media influence. I am viewed at a certain level in terms of my ability, my education, my knowledge, etc. That's my influence over something. My persuasion is one-on-one. Oh, really, really, really interesting. Can you talk about the three steps to persuade a counterparty? Yeah, uh, very similar to what we talked about before with Aristotle, right? Logic, emotion, and credibility. You know what we didn't talk about, though, Sabrina, is we didn't talk about uh, ethical credibility. I think that's really important to be able to talk about. What I am, I want to be very cautious in how I, because we talked about piggyback credibility a little bit. Right. What I am not saying is take the shortcut always. This is a very important and very important point. Credibility, and, and that's really important to build over time, and it's very important to protect, and it's very important to nurture. Uh I'm not saying that the shortcut, that piggyback credibility that we're talking about earlier, is something that you should use all the time instead of developing your overall credibility within an organization. You do both. That makes makes total sense. So we're just about at the end of our interview, and if... So I've got a lot of people right now, especially right now, a lot of people are looking for jobs. Mm -hmm. Um, They're having to negotiate salaries. And um, some of the statistics are that men do this, but women don't. So and I have more women listeners. So can you talk about I just had this happen. Uh, One of my uh, clients She's been making 250, 250K and she got offered a job at 175 and was able to say, let me think about it. Good. And she ended up coming back and say, I, I want 250. She got 225 and that worked out. But can you talk a little bit about how to do that? Because for some people, it's it's really scary. Like uh, they need the job. Oh, yeah. And, you know, should they just go ahead and take the 175000 even though now they won't be able to make their house payment or whatever the thing is? Yeah, it is scary. And I find that it's actually harder to negotiate for yourself than it is to negotiate for someone else. Because yeah. there's there's way more emotion involved in negotiating for yourself than there is you, you can almost separate yourself a little bit from it when you're negotiating on someone else's behalf. So that there's a real feeling there. And I don't want to discount that because that's really important because it's a real feeling. It's a real emotion that a lot of people feel that fear of like, oh, I don't want to not get this. Right. What I think is really important for people to understand whenever they're negotiating something that's that personal, the strategy remains the same. 
right? Still understanding what you want to get out of this, still understanding what you require, not just the salary, but the vacation days and all of the things that you need to be able to negotiate this, because we're trying to think of total compensation, not just the salary. If it was just about the salary, for most people, they wouldn't be doing what they're probably doing. They would probably be in a financial role of some kind, right? A finance right. role. Because it is about more than just that. So make sure that all of your asks, whatever your asks are, are well-structured, well-laid out. If it's vacation time, retirement benefits, exit plan, equity, how how much money you get paid, um, comp- uh, benefits, all that kind of stuff is really, really important to be very clear about. But also think about now that you have all those things, what's your worst case right? What is your, what is your worst acceptable deal, right? What's your worst acceptable deal that you'd be willing to accept that you're thinking to yourself, okay, if I go lower than this, I can't do this deal and I should walk away from it. Where most people fall flat in personal negotiations is they're not clear at what point they should be walking away from the deal. So get that very, very clear and be very disciplined with yourself around that. Be very clear about what that is. And all of that stuff that we talked about, whether it's compensation, benefits, retirement, all that kind of stuff, think about where you are relative to the market, because all of that has to be taken into account as well. For example, if your last job, you were earning 125 and you go into your next job and you think you should be earning 225, you and I probably have to have a heart to heart about look, are you actually worth this? Mm -hmm. Now, when a lot of people hear that, they get very defensive. They say, well, Mark, I know what I'm worth. I know that you feel like you might be worth that much, but it does the market feel that you're worth that much. Right. And that's a very important reflection point. So understand what your worst acceptable deal is relative to the market. Because if your worst acceptable deal is 50% above where the market says you should be, you're probably not being very realistic. Now, does that mean that you shouldn't ask for that? No, obviously not. You should always ask for more, but you should be thinking about where the market is. There is a fantastic book on this, um, especially you just spoke about how women re- react in these kinds of situations. Mm-hmm. There's a fantastic book uh, by Linda Babcock and Sarah Lashifer called Women Don't Ask, Negotiation and the Gender Divide. Mm-hmm. And it talks all about sort of the systemic bias that comes around negotiation. It's absolutely brilliant. I highly recommend that everyone pick that up. Thank and you. Just- and they've been on the show. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. yeah. And so they go into quite a bit of detail and research around why this happens and how this happens and what you can do about it. So they're the experts when it comes to women. I'm not going to jump in there because they're much better at it than I am. But what I can tell you from a generalized perspective when it comes to negotiating your salary, the same strategy applies in commercial negotiations, internal negotiations, and salary negotiations. Be very clear about what you want understand all of the different things that you want, understand what the range of acceptable outcomes are for each of the things that you want, understand what the counterparty wants from you and what it is you're willing to provide to the counterparty in order to facilitate those things and then start the discussion there. Always ask for more. Now, 
what I'm saying by that, so when some people hear that, they hear ask for 100% more. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying ask for slightly more than your best case, than your best expected deal. I mean slightly than your best expected deal because you want to get the counterparty back into that range of acceptable outcomes for you. So if you ask for more, there's a higher probability of success for that. And just be very clear about what it is you're looking for. And by the way, they're going to push you, right? They're going to say, well, this role, we're kind of only looking at this. And then they're going to try and lowball you in a certain situation. If you need time to think about it, take the time to think about it. Do not say no. Do not say yes. Just say can I get back to you? That's all you have to say. You don't have to go into any kind of extended verbose you know, clarification on something. You just say, hey, can I get back to you? That's it. So is that true in all negotiations, do you think? Yes, that, absolutely. Um, I can think in, personally in my life how many times I either said yes or no and if I would have said, can I get back to you, I would have had a very different answer because I hadn't really thought through what that meant, either right. the yes or no. Yeah, because because there's so much going on in a negotiation, you're trying to do the mash, math, you're trying to deal with the emotion of the situation, you're not sure if this works or doesn't work. There's 101 things going on. You're not actually thinking straight, right? Like your brain's not reacting logically or rationally to that situation, give yourself time to think. If you need the time to think, take that time out. Can I get back to you? Can, you give, me, can you give me a couple of days? Can you give me a week? Whatever amount of time you need to get back to that person, ask for that. No one's, no one's going to say no, by the way. No one's ever going to say, no, you can't have time to think. Because if they say no, your response is, well, hang on, that doesn't make sense. You're asking me to make a decision on the spot right now. Is that something you would want an executive to do, or would you want them to think rationally and reasonably about it? Then anyone worth their weight in gold is going to be able to say, you know what? You're right. Take your time. Yeah. And if you get asked a question, whether it's in an interview or in a negotiation, and you say, I, I need to think about that or get back to you. Yeah. It it looks like you're really smart. It doesn't look like you're stupid and don't know what you're doing. It's like you're thinking it through. Yeah, exactly. I mean, especially around challenging questions. I mean, hopefully in the interview, you've done a significant amount of work to be able to answer most questions. But if a really challenging question comes up and they say, well, how would you address this situation? Like, I actually don't know right now. Can I have some time and I'll get back to you? Right. So we're just about finished. Is there any last thing that you want to leave the audience with? Prepare, prepare, prepare. That okay. is the main focus of the book. Planning and preparation is your key to success. Okay. And if people want to get a hold of you, what's the best way to do that? Easiest place to do it is on LinkedIn. Just search my name. Please connect with me and let me know that you've listened to me on Sabrina's show. If you don't let me know, I will not connect with you. Great. Perfect. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Mark, for being here today. I really, really appreciated it. And um, I'm, I'm really excited about sharing this with my audience. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great pleasure.
You're welcome. Wait, keep listening. If you like this show and want to learn more on how to be a transformational leader, I have a special offer for you and a gift in just a moment. Thanks for following me on LinkedIn where you can get more leadership tips from me. And also, I really appreciate you sharing, liking, and giving me a review in Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Remember, if you consider yourself a current or future high potential executive that wants to have influence, impact, and radically increase your income, I invite you to reach out to me on my contact page on womensleadershipsuccess.com so we can connect. Lastly, be sure and check out my Action for Traction for this episode in the show notes at womensleadershipsuccess.com. You will get three easy but powerful steps you can take immediately, plus some downloadable articles and videos based on this interview to help you truly be a transformational leader. Bye for now. See you soon. Thank you for joining your host, Sabrina Brahm, on another Women's Leadership Podcast. If you have questions or comments, you can email her at sabrina at sabrinabrahm.com. Since 1989, Sabrina and her team have helped hundreds of women managers, business leaders, and entrepreneurs with valuable trainings, articles, books, and executive coaching. For additional tips, interviews, and free access to Great Leaders Today mini-course, visit www.womensleadershipsuccess.com.